I like to be my own bank. I am a big believer in being your own bank through the form of whole life coverage. It affords you the opportunity to make investments with your own capital. If I'm my own bank, I control the terms and I build wealth. Building wealth just doesn't happen. You gotta be intentional about it. You gotta explore multiple avenues to best leverage your income, not just for you, but for the generations to come. Our biggest asset as lawyers is also generally your most illiquid asset. And if you buy the building and put your law firm in, you are doubling down on that illiquid asset. It's a great vehicle to invest in because there's nothing better than setting your own rent and having passed through income to a real estate entity that gives you different tax advantages. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, where we give you the tools you need to take your personal injury practice to the next level. Andrew Finkelstein is a juggernaut in personal injury. You may know that he's the managing partner of five firms from coast to coast, employs over 85 attorneys, and he's recovered over $250 million for his clients. What you may not know is that he's also started an actual publicly traded bank, Empire State Bank. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. Last time Andrew joined us on the show, we took a deep dive into acquisitions and I highly recommend checking out that episode that we've linked up in the show notes. Today, we explore building wealth, both individually and as a law firm. From tax advantage accounts to being your own bank, we explore investing tactics that have massive long-term impact. But before we get into that, we begin with Andrew's new book, I Hope We Never Meet, Client Stories of Tragedy, Recovery, and Accountability from a Life in Deterrence Law. Here's Andrew Finkelstein, Managing Partner at Finkelstein & Partners. The inspiration was really some clients that I had come across that were really struggling right after the event. And I often will meet with certainly clients who have suffered a catastrophic event or lost a family member. And I spend a lot of time not talking about the law, not talking about uh, what we're going to do for them, but spend a lot of time talking about other cases of people in similar situations and that I give them the assurance that what they're going through at this moment in time is the worst of it. And although they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, having helped so many people through that process so many times, they always get some comfort from that conversation. And I realize that I have a lot of these stories and I would like to be able to tell every one of my clients when they retain us, but I'm not able to sheer time and volume. So I wrote this book with the thought that uh, I'm going to give it to every new client in the office, as well as uh, all of our existing clients. And I'm going to send it to several of our past clients. Yeah, and this is really productive use of leverage uh, and just from a marketing perspective, and we'll get in that in a moment. But I got to tell you, I'm struggling to get through the book because 
it pulls on my heartstrings. Like it really, the way the book's set up is you've, you featured these nine stories. And I think that's super smart how you did the book because instead of just forcing in the, an individual into maybe one scenario that they couldn't relate to. It's not a continuous story. They just pick the chapter that they think they'll get the greatest benefit from. It's not my expectation that people will sit and read the entire book, although it wasn't my intention to write an emotional book. And I didn't think that it was emotional as I wrote it because I've lived all of those various events. But I knew that it was emotional when I asked my wife to read it before we published it. And she was emotional because she's lived through those cases with me. She knew all the stories. It was nothing was a surprise, but it triggered something that I knew would trigger in other people as well. What do you hope each reader will gain from the book? And you know, how do you intend to use it to help them? I hope they gain the long view and can get out of their moment by moment situation. And a simple example is when you think about pain and discomfort, time is forever. When you're doing something enjoyable and it's fun, time flies by. And the people that this is intended for and that I'm dealing with is they're in the phase of very slow time. And I try to let them know that time will speed up again. While the center of their world right now is very slow and painful, that the world will continue to grow around and uh, what they're going through will, I don't want to say pass. It doesn't get any uh, less painful, certainly in wrongful death cases, but more things happen that you start to think about. Yeah, that's incredible to be able to do that for someone. And I think the the best part of this is is doing it through a story. Like that's how individuals can relate and retain. So I think it's super smart. Jumping over to you know the second part, there's a marketing practicality to it. it there's some authority building. You know, ultimately this book was written for the consumer who's going through a profound tragedy. You infuse so much expertise in the pages. But, you know, how does the book help convey your authority and your your knowledge of the situations to your audience? By interspersing legal concepts. And I don't just tell the story of a case. I try to give some insight related to the strategy with which that case was put forth, as well as the thought process of my clients. And an ancillary benefit of the book, which was intentional, was to try to change the perspective of the what I do. And the insurance companies have done a very, very good job at chastising plaintiffs, personal injury lawyers, and uh, setting us up as quote unquote ambulance chasers when we're anything but. And the right. reason why they do that is they want to make it look like it's a windfall for the people who actually pursue their rights, where the Constitution gives people the right to hold other people accountable. And what the Constitution doesn't do is give somebody the right 
to uh, harm a member of the community without consequences. And that's really what these corporations are trying to do to create the impression that they have the right to ignore safety rules and hurt people in our community. And those that they hurt have no rights and should be uh, dismissed. And I tried to explain that through the various stories in the book. And when I explain that to my clients, you can see them sit up tall and recognize that they're doing something not just for them, but also for their family and people in the community. Because if they sat back and did not pursue their rights and hold those wrongdoers accountable, very simple, actions rewarded will be repeated. And these corporations would just continue to do that which they do. And in this, in the book, I give the McDonald's story. Uh, and I don't want to go through the whole story, but the short version is it changed McDonald's ways. Other examples that I didn't put it in the book is uh, these pharmaceutical companies, right? When they are held accountable and they put defective drugs that do more harm than good, they are compelled to take those products off the marketplace. And it would never happen if people didn't access their constitutional right to hold them accountable. That's really a central part of the book as well. And in doing so, I always explain it's the clients that are the ones who are really holding them accountable. I'm just the conduit for that to happen. And the authority building is really just in my estimation, is the broad breadth of stories that I tell and different scenarios. And I've had the honor and privilege of handling so many really significant cases in many different realms, not limited to a silo of type of cases that I'm able to speak about many of them. So you're trying to deter future actions like the McDonald's situation, like, uh, you know, many situations, you know, motor vehicle, a uh, product liability, you know, something's wrong with a vehicle. You don't, you want to stop those in the future. And I know you've worked on many different cases. As an example, I'm about to start a trial next week where somebody was injured on a construction site. It was entirely predictable and preventable. And this construction company, the general contractor and the owner of the project put forth a plan that said, here is a significant risk and this is how we're going to mitigate it. But they ignored it. They ignored their their own mitigation strategy. Not only that, the in New York, the labor law required them to have the mitigation strategy and they ignored it. So uh, as a result, my client was catastrophically injured and lost a leg. Never should have happened. Yet they're coming forward and trying to blame him, not accepting any responsibility. Uh, and he understands that he has not just a duty to him and his family to to pursue this, but if he didn't hold them accountable, this general contractor who has a lot of construction work, they would just ignore those safety rules going forward. Let's talk about the the project it, itself. So, you know, writing the book, it seems overwhelming. It seems like a massive endeavor. What do you wish you knew before you started the process? Let's walk through that uh, scenario. 
I was challenged because I've never undertaken such a project and I wasn't sure how to do it. But I rarely, I can't think of a time that I see a wall in front of me. It's just a project. It's not something that is insurmountable. There's, I truly believe uh, there's nothing that I can't do. That doesn't mean that I'll be successful at it. And that doesn't mean that I'll do it really well, but I sure as hell will try and I'll get through the best that I can get through. So it was never a scenario where I was sat down and said, I could, I can't do this. It was all right. So I'm going to write a book. What, how do I think is the best strategy about going about it? I did not watch anything on YouTube or read a book on how to write a book. I just sat down and did it. And I really thought through the process, what is it that I want my book to, who do I want it to speak to? That was my first threshold question that I answered for myself, which was for, I wanted to speak to my clients. And then what is it that I want to communicate to my clients, which I've already talked about, which are those stories. So then I just sat down and, and literally on a spreadsheet wrote probably off the top of my head, 25 cases with the core facts of what those cases were. And then I organized them by types of injury, whether it was a, a wrongful death or a amputation or paralysis, whatever. And then I decided just to organize them. Once it was on a spreadsheet, it was easy to do organize them by injury. And then I took the elements of, for example, if I had off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what it was, but if I had 10 wrongful death cases, I took elements from all of them and created a story. Because each of those chapters, they all have elements of multiple cases in them. They're not one story. And I did that because I didn't want to I didn't want any client to feel like, oh, that's my story. I've had some prior clients call with great pride and said, when you wrote that element, was were you really talking about me? And the answer was yes, but nobody would be able to recognize their individual case in there. Andrew could have written a blog post or posted videos on YouTube, but he explains why a book is a great way to stand out and create authority in a saturated market. The perception is the difficulty of creating and authoring a book is high. And when there's a high barrier, those who accomplish it have a certain element of expertise that's perceived by the mere fact that the book was written and physically giving that to a client and letting them consume it at their leisure uh, without the necessity of being connected to something I thought was just completely different messaging. I've, I have a lot of YouTube videos, a lot, which I use in the delivery of my services to our clients. So I have a, a series where I explain litigation, I explain uh, settlements, I explain offers, all sub videos, and we share those with our clients. But the book itself 
is not the delivery of my services. It's the delivery of a message. And uh, that messaging of that we're a firm that's about care and compassion and concern, I think a book speaks volumes to that. So it creates an authority that I just don't think one gets from YouTube because there are so many uh, YouTube videos out there and, or any other medium. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, you know, it's leverage. You can, you can distribute it. And the other thing that it's interesting that a book does, even from a, a podcasting perspective here, right. We're talking about your book. We're talking about the strategies of why you wrote it. So it gives you, you know, these different platforms, you could potentially, go to conferences, speak about the book on stage and that maybe other things don't do as easily, not to say that you couldn't have those same opportunities and you have, but um, it gives the host like myself or the conference, like a, like a platform or a reason to, to have an expert on the stage. And so I think there's some of those applications too, particularly on the podcasting side, that's an easier way to get a, your foot in the door. It also allowed me to have a lot more thought than I generally do in speaking publicly. So when I speak publicly, which I do a lot, I really don't prepare much. Like I did not prepare for this podcast. And one impression will be made through my voice and the stories that I tell and the the words that I use, but they are not nearly as deliberate as they were when I sat down and wrote the book. So I can create a more, what I think would be a more authentic presentation of myself. Not that I'm not being authentic now, but I can really think through how I want to communicate through the book. And because I really wanted, it was very important to me that that book really was in my voice in the way that I speak to my clients. I think that's really interesting to to think about because when you're speaking on stage or you're doing a podcast, you're like, oh, you know what? I wish I would have said this or or I had this little insight. I didn't have the time or maybe I didn't convey it properly, but you really get to be intentional about the words in the book. That's a perfect example because I was just struggling with describing the difference between a podcast and writing the book. And really, until you just said that, what I was what I was struggling with is being able to have a full and complete thought of why I think writing a book is better than a podcast. And I kind of circled the wagon on that. And when you sit down and write a book, you can really have a complete thought of the topic that you are addressing and not leave anything out. I love that. It also takes much longer. So you might be in chapter seven, right? And then you can go back to chapter two and then implement some things in there that you maybe might've missed on the first pass. So I think that's, that's really interesting. I never thought about that aspect of it, of that complete thought and conveying a message properly. I kind of want to switch over to a different topic. We talk a lot about income on this show. So we talk about marketing strategies. We talk about intake. We talk about client experience and getting more case value. But what we haven't talked about is wealth creation. I wanted to get your general view on income versus wealth? So income is short-term, wealth is long-term. That's the short 
my short answer. You do things in the short term to drive your current income. You should do things with a very long-term view to drive wealth. And wealth creation, except for the 0.0001% of the population, is something that is created over decades, not days. And we get romanticized into thinking as a population when we hear the Zuckerberg, Musk, Gates stories that it's achievable for any of us to create great wealth in a short period of time. That is not the norm. But in reality, if one is to build uh, wealth as compared to income, you have to have a decades long perspective, which is why uh, the federal government has created 401ks, IRAs. That's where wealth is built in tax advantage investments over the long term. And income is just real short term. I think that was very well articulated. Wealth, it takes time to accrue. It's got to compound and opportunities aren't around every corner. They're around certain corners in time. I wanted to kind of talk about just some just in generalizations about some of the options and you hit on the the IRA and the 401k. How should they be thinking about those? Should it should a firm do a simple IRA or a 401k or is it the different stages of their their business? It really depends on the type of law firm it is. There are different purposes for retirement accounts. That's really what we're talking about and offering retirement accounts at law firms. The significant differential is the type of investment does not allow the term is discrimination. That uh, the owner can't discriminate in the amount of money that's contributed in a percentage basis different than uh, the employee non-owner. And I'm speaking very, very broadly without just trying to give the concept. So sometimes a retirement plan is not for the law firm is not the best scenario because uh, the owner may, when I say want to discriminate, may have more disposable income that they can choose to put into a long-term investment as compared to the non-owner in the organization. And you could be handcuffed in your ability to do that through just a firm type investment. But the alternative is, depending on the size of your organization, your employees may be looking for you to help them with their long-term investment, not from a financial perspective, but from an education standpoint, because many uh, non-professionals may not have the breadth of knowledge or experience on the long-term perspective. So if you can put in place a program that helps them save over the long-term to build their own personal wealth, they view that as you're taking care of them in a 
human way, which is part of what I believe my ob obligation is to the people who work in my organization, not just help them earn an income, but help them build wealth. The thing about the IRA and the 401k and you know, your different levels of, of what you can invest, flipping over to some other vehicles, I just kind of want to touch on these. You know, I'm a huge fan of real estate. I like the tax advantages. I like the hedge against inflation. Do you think law firm owners should own their own building as maybe a, a form of an asset? So law firms should own their own building if they are secure in the long-term prospects of their firm. Because when you say that, the first word that comes to my mind is diversification. Our biggest asset as lawyers is generally our law firm. Our most illiquid asset that we have is our law firm. It is not something that is easily transferable. There's no true marketplace to buy, sell law firms. So your biggest asset is also generally your most illiquid asset. And if you buy the building and put your law firm in, you are doubling down on that illiquid asset and you're not diversifying. But if you have a great deal of confidence in the long-term prospects of your entity, it's a great vehicle to invest in because there's nothing better than setting your own rent and having pass-through income to a real estate entity that gives you different tax advantages. You want to make sure you're diversified. Owning a building can be an asset for firms confident in their longevity, but it can also be a potential liability because it's just not a very liquid asset. But there's more than one way to build wealth in a law firm. The Rockefellers built their wealth through overfunded whole life insurance. Andrew gives us his take on that approach. Here's my thoughts. I like to be my own bank. If I'm my own bank, I control the terms and I build wealth. Separate and aside, I don't know if you're aware of this. I formed an actual bank. It's a publicly traded bank, Empire State Bank. Formed it in 2004. I'm chairman of the bank. When I'm talking about I like to be my own bank, I'm not referencing that. I'm referencing whole life. And whole life creates a vehicle for you to be your own bank. You are not affecting the death benefit that'll help your family unless you die when there's an outstanding loan and that gets deducted from the death benefit. But uh, it affords you the opportunity to make investments with your own capital and pay back that capital with interest, which is it should be nominal in the big picture. So I am a big believer in being your own bank through the form of whole life coverage. And the reason why I say be your own bank is I read a book that said be your own bank and it completely illustrated the use of whole life to build wealth. If people aren't familiar with the different types of life insurance products, it's really important to, to do your due diligence on the different types of life insurance products. 
I am not a believer in lots of other life insurance products. Same. For sure. Yeah, same. Like, uh, I think the interesting thing about the overfunded whole life insurance and where you're alluding to being your own bank is where the dividends still and your equity still accrues and va- still increases in value. So the arbitrage risk of what you're borrowing, that percentage from the equity that you own, is mitigated because it still increases in value. Right. And, so, and, and it's really important. Not a whole, all whole life products and whole life companies are the same. I would, and Chris, I'm going to drill down a little bit on what you were just saying. There's a huge difference between a mutual life and a life insurance company. A mutual life, for example, I believe Northwestern is a mutual and the Guardian is a mutual. And there are a few other mutuals. It says this, any excess premiums that the company earns get redistributed back to the whole life owners. So you are not only own a whole life company, a whole life policy that you can draw down against, you get the dividends of the company in the form of added death benefit. With that added death benefit, you then have more capital to draw from. That's for those who are familiar with it, that's how it works. That does not happen with a non-mutual company, to my understanding. Where So that, that's where the life insurance company is keeping those excess premiums and that drives their earnings. There's so much here. So guys, those of you listening, I think we have to bring on an expert because I'm in agreement. I think this is one of the best forms of wealth creation. And again, that's how the Rockefellers out of the families that we hear about, the Carnegies and all of those, that's why the Rockefellers still have their money. It's because of whole life. How about, I'll give you another one, Forbes. Malcolm Forbes had more life insurance than any other asset when he died. But And the main reason is it passes outside of your estate from estate tax purposes. I hear that banks to a majority of their investments go in the whole life, which is interesting. So, to think uh, of uh, being, so being a chairman of a, of a bank, I can tell you it's called a BOLI, bank-owned life insurance, B-O-L-I. And there's a whole separate investment product that's sold exclusively to banks, BOLIs. And the bank will take capital and have a whole life policy on their executives the executives have to sign off and agree to it. And they earn and it the earnings that are earned on the by bully go to the earnings of the bank. So wow. the answer is my bank has a significant investment in bullies. Super smart. Super smart. I want to touch on 529 accounts for kids. Definitely. Yeah. Really important. That's building wealth over 18 years. Start from as soon as they're born, don't miss it. My youngest graduates uh, college in two weeks. So we've made our last 529 payment out of her account. My middle one graduates grad school, uh, master's in education. And my oldest is in his second year of law school. We invested in 529 plans for each of them. 
as set just like you did starting as soon as they were born funded it for the first seven years of their life or so um and then it just what happened to my son was born in 94 so i caught the the uh, 94 97 99 and it's been a fantastic stock market put it into the most aggressive investment that you possibly can each of my kids have multiple six figures still in their 529 accounts after they're done it's completely transferable and i told each of them to not touch it so that when they have children they can transfer it to their children and their kids colleges will be paid for just think about how long those monies will be invested there's no great greater wealth creator than the stock market no doubt about it the short-term pain will result in long-term gain i'm sharing that with you chris so that you can see just like my book you can see the other side of it right hang yeah. in there uh, put a little whether it's a monthly contribution or Anything you put in will have long-term compounding. And, and when you get your 529 statement, you see what your contribution is and what the growth is. I mean, the, right. the growth the growth has been with, in my kids' account, it's been, you know, five, 600%. Yeah. Just by leaving it in. And I think what you alluded to, yeah, get when they're young, super young, you can be incredibly risky and, your risk aversion changes as, as we age. But the other thing that I, you know, back to the kind of the whole life I'm beating myself up. Cause I've got, you know, I've got 20 plus single family homes, portfolio loan fixed, you know, doing all of that. And, and I'm getting really great tax benefits and I'm just kicking myself that I didn't, you know, get the, the capital from the whole refunded whole life insurance and didn't know anything about it. And I could have been borrowing against myself and right. growing my own money, but instead exactly. the bank's getting that benefit and we're talking a lot of money. So exactly. it's all these interesting things. And I think what uh, I'm let me, trying- let me, let, me, let me throw one out, one more yeah. thing out for you. So you, you basically said, if you replaced your bank with your whole life and financed your real estate purchases, you would have had it on both sides, the capital appreciation right. in, in the real estate together with the interest income on the whole life side, and you're getting it on both sides. What I would, because this is for lawyers, consider being your own insurance company, which is what I've done. You can uh, form, it's gotta be a bona fide insurance company there are different states that have different advantages, whether it's Vermont, whether it's Nevada, you could do it offshore. There are lots of different ways of accomplishing it, but you pay yourself premiums for your coverage and invest those premiums. And there's special regulations in the IRS code that says the premiums, as long if it's a basically a captive insurance company it's called captive insurers have special rules and regulations in the irs code that the first 1.2 million dollars of premium that's uh recovered or, or that's paid to the captive insurance company is federally tax free and depending on the state that, that'll determine your state tax so there's a expense on the law firm side as a paying any insurance company, but there's no tax on the 
captive side, and then that is capital that then can be invested and then can be paid out as dividends. Jeez, that's that is that's really heavy on me. And I know Ted Jenkins at a, I was at a Chris conference talk alluded, you know, talked briefly on it as well. And yeah, and by know, the way, it's not it's not limited to law. It it's not limited to law firms. Yeah, I'm t- because we're speaking of law firms. Law firms pay. It, you can pay an insurance premium, and what you pay insurance premiums not for just malpractice coverage, but you also pay for your buildings and things like that. The individual creates the captive, and there's no restrictions on where entities purchase their insurance from. So you can have each of your homes purchase uh, or or your real estate investment properties purchase. If you have 20 of them, they can all purchase their hurricane coverage. I'm just, I can't think of another coverage, but they could purchase only their hurricane coverage from your captive. And basically you can set what that premium is. There are definitely restrictions, but for these purposes, there you can set almost any premium that you want for that slice of coverage. And then you can go out with a traditional insurer and have liability coverage. Or what you can do is you can do self-insure on all of your properties. For example, the first $50,000 of liability coverage on all of your properties. I'm just making these numbers up. And then because you're an insurance company, you then have access to the reinsurance marketplace. And then you can reinsure that liability or potential liability through the reinsurance marketplace, which is far cheaper than the primary insurance. So a different form of arbitrage. And I've heard too that Warren Buffett, where he really had that exponential growth was because of Geico and the float that we're talking about here for capital, um, which is a whole different rabbit hole to go down. And I think it's intriguing and there's a lot of opportunity for continuing conversations. But, you know, but can, I, can I just say broadly, yeah. the only reason why I have this knowledge is because I ask questions mm-hmm. and I research and I ask questions and I research. I didn't go to a consultant who said, do this, do this, do this. I heard about a captive insurance company and then I did all the research on it. Why am I saying that? Because anybody can do it. It's not, it's all out there. All that information is out there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, do I regret the the real estate stuff? No, you know, I learned a lot from the real estate and now I know how to get more granular and deeper in terms of those strategies. And I, I think it's the same with owning a law firm. You know how to practice law, but you get deeper and you get more specific and get, you know, you, you look at like a Joe Freed on trucking and how deep he goes on trucking. And you can do that on a lot of these outlets. By the way, Joe's the best. Yeah. Good Joe friend. is the best. Big picture. How should law firm owners be thinking about a future exit? Because it's more challenging in the legal space because acquisitions aren't as common. Having said that you've done several very successfully, but you're one of the few how should owners be thinking about a future exit? So if we want to talk about percentages, I don't know the exact percentage, but I know it's well under 5%. And I dare say 3% of law firms make it to a second generation. So understanding that it's not likely that you're, that the law firm will continue on to a next generation, I would 
highly recommend to be thinking about how to maximize your income so that you can build wealth over a long period of time, because the likelihood of a capital exit is very, very small. The type of exits that law firms, law firm owners generally accomplish is a merger where they get a cash flow stream based on what their inventory represents. But that at any given time, a snapshot of your current inventory, you have to reduce the expenses associated with it, the operating costs. So it's not nearly as much, I'm speaking broadly on most law firms as the law firm owner thinks. And there's also substantial risk associated with the merger or the transfer of those cases, because now it's dependent on somebody else successfully accomplishing the outcome of the case versus you handling it. The exit for law firms really is, you got to be thinking merger and thinking partners that will pay you something for your asset, which is your inventory over the long term. The alternative is having people within your organization that you groom and train and trust and you exit and then they just continue the entity. What's next for you, Andrew? And where can listeners go to get a copy of your book? Well, my book is available on basically an Amazon or any other bookstore online, Barnes and Noble. And I just I do want to say that a hundred percent of the proceeds go to to a charity. I received nothing from it. And what's next for me? I am don't know. I'm trying a lot of cases, which is a lot of fun. Although I've had the opportunity that I've had related to taking over law firms and forming different partnerships. I didn't seek any of them out. They all happened to come to me. So I'm always very open-minded as to what the future holds, but I don't have any master plan. And it'll play out however it plays out, but I will always uh, do things that I find to be fun. That's the central decision that I make. If I'm not going to have fun doing it, then I'm not going to do it. So I don't know if that disappoints you or that I don't have some master plan and like what's next. I don't. We'll see. There's no one size fits all when it comes to investing. Ask questions and remain curious. You can help your employees not only earn an income, but build lasting wealth. I'd like to thank Andrew Finkelstein from Finkelstein and Partners for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gain some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.